handy to us uh, at Stormont. But more importantly uh, to those of us uh, who, who, who go to church, um, they want to change it from, from May Day, which is of course is a Monday, uh, to a Sunday. And there are churches along the new route uh, close to us, uh, and that will affect them. And, and some people won't be able to meet as a result on the first day of the week. As we pick up the, the narrative in, in chapter 6 of Daniel, uh, verse 31 of chapter 5 is a bit of a summary uh, as to something pretty big that's going on in the region. A whole lot of jostling and, and bloodshed has been summarized in, in, in the very last verse of chapter 5. Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. The Nebuchadnezzar and his uh, Babylonian Empire has been confined to the history books. I'm sure they didn't just lie down, but it's, it's there in black and white. It's been taken over. It's done and dusted. Uh, gone is Nebuchadnezzar. Gone is his son, Belshazzar. Uh, and there's a new king in the empire. It's Darius the Mede who receives the kingdom. It's interesting, that even the, the terminology there, receives the kingdom. Um, and it's 539 BC. Uh, it's, the, it's the kingdom with the chest and arms of silver from chapter 2. If you remember that prophecy uh, that, that's now being um, come, to, to come into um, reality. Uh, and get used to prophecy uh, because there's more coming your way soon, by the way, as we go into the later part of Daniel. With the new regime, there's a, there's a new governing structure. We, it's outlined at the beginning of chapter 6, and we have 120 satraps, uh, whatever they are, over various things. Uh, and we have three um, presidents or, or high officials. And Daniel, our man, is one of these three. His job is to protect the interests and assets of, of King Darius. It's Daniel, of course, remains in situ. Uh, they, they've all changed around him, but Daniel's still there. Uh, the old empire um, has, has, has gone, but, but Daniel, who's been faithful for donkey's years, uh, he, the new owners have come along and they've kept the management um, in place. But Darius um, has the mind to do a bit of a cabinet reshuffle, we're told, as we read the first few verses. He, he has the mind to, to, to set one man over the whole kingdom. Perhaps he wants to semi-retire. He is 62, um, but we don't quite know. But he has, he has his eyes on one man, and, and that's our man, Daniel. He believes he's the right man to step up to the role. Uh, he, he, he eyes Daniel for promotion. And we must realize that, of course, that Daniel has to be really good at his job. He's, the, he's well thought of. He, he's distinguished, we're told in verse 3. He, he stands out from the rest. He's a bit like Saul. Uh, if you remember, he was head and shoulders above everyone else that was, was there and was a candidate. Remember um, where he's come from. But remember, Daniel, he, he's a Jew. He's, he's come from Israel. He's in exile. Uh, he's, he's come a long way. He, he, he's a foreigner in the land. And yet he's the man that, that King Darius wants to set over the whole of his empire. He's been ascending, that's the idea. He's been climbing up the ranks. We're told that an excellent spirit is within him. And we know this already because we know how it got there. If you remember back to chapter 1, God has given it to him. God has given him ability to be good at his job. Uh, this happened when he was a young man, and now he's, he's old, he's probably in his 80s, and it's still there. We see in verse 4 that Daniel is a man of great integrity. 
There's no dodgy dealings with him as he conducts his duties. There's, there's nothing that will stick on him when it comes to, uh, to any, any skeletons in the closet, if you like. No questionable accounting practices, no backhanders, no, no unfair decision-making or, or favoritism with Daniel. He doesn't need to play by the rules of, of any other system to, to, to be good at his job in Babylon as a civil servant. And that teaches us, doesn't it, that, that it's possible to, to, be in, to have integrity and to be good at your job, whatever it is you do. As a person of principle and conviction, you can be uh, excellent at your job in the world that we live in, in Northern Ireland, whatever that job may be. Even if you think it's boring, even if you don't think it's a job at all, maybe you, you have a caring at rule, maybe you, you look after, you keep a home, and that's your rule, and, and, and it's possible uh, to, to, to do a really good job. In fact, Daniel teaches us that, that you should be as good as you can be, because Daniel was, and he rises to the, to the fore. He comes to the top because God's blessing him, and he's, and he's got his principles, and he's, in, and he's got integrity. But of course, this, this immediately causes jealousy, doesn't it? To be a faithful servant of God brings trouble right from cover to cover in the Bible, and it's no different today. There's trouble in the air. The very thought of a Jew rising to be the, the king's sole ruler over the whole kingdom causes his contemporaries to recoil in disgust. It causes them to, 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 to racially gather together and say, we don't like this. We don't want this man to be the chief of, of all of us. He's, he's a Jew. Or he's, he's one of these foreigners. And they recognize, of course, that no mud is going to stick on Daniel as far as his public life is concerned. As far as kingdom work goes, he's the best of the best. But they also know that he's a man of faith. And they come up with an idea. They know that he's a man of prayer. They've clearly seen him in action already. And they come up with this scheme. And it concerns prayer. Second point. Parlous. They say that, that no one can pray or petition any God for 30 days except Darius. What a great idea. That'll catch out the favorite, you know, that'll, that'll get him. Because when, when, when three friends, of course, are, of Daniel's are sent to the furnace in, in chapter 3, it's, it's, it was you must bow to our God in addition to whatever else you're doing. But here, here it's you must only, you must bow only to our God. It's exclusive. It's only, you're only allowed to, to bow to the one. I spoke on the second week of a study of God moving kings and, and nations around like pieces on a chessboard, and you can still see it on the slide. If this was a board game, this would be monopoly. You know, this is a monopoly of worship, what they're planning. And they bring this to the king. And it sounds great to him. Let's make you the only God for 30 days. And the king's ego is clearly tickled and he says, I'll have some of that, please. And they lie to him. You see it there? They say, we're all in agreement. <laughs> we're all in agreement. That, uh, your cabinet has met and we think that this injunction is a good idea. Uh, our collective advice is for you to do this. Uh, but of course, all of the high officials, all of the presidents in the kingdom are not in agreement. 
at all. <laughs> one of the three high officials, the one that means most to the king, well, he's not on board, is he? The top dog of the three, it's uh, the soon-to-be-promoted Daniel. I, and I sort of imagine, it's not here in the, in the scripture, but I'm, I'm sort of imagining that the king is caught up in the moment, that they've sort of tickled his ego and his deep desire to be revered by all the people of his, of his kingdom and uh, to be the one that everybody looks to and petitions and asks from, to get everyone to recognize what he knew himself already, this kind of idea. And the thing is signed before he thinks too much about it. And sign it he does. Pray to the king only. Pray to any other god and into the den of lions you go. Death, in other words. And once the law is in play, it's not too long before they come back to the king and, and they ask him about his law. It's there in verse 12. Did you not say, they said, and you can hear the, the tone of it, that anyone praying to any god in the next 30 days has to be thrown into the den of lions. And the king, uh, yeah, absolutely, that's what we said, uh-huh, happily so. And then they drop, they drop the bomb, the important piece of information. They say, ah, Daniel, your favorite president has failed to obey. And you can imagine the smile is wiped off Darius's face. Of course, Daniel. Oh, yes, Daniel, he's a devout Hebrew. I should have known. He, he's not going to stop praying to his God, no, no matter what. He's not going to do it. And Daniel breaks the rule because he has his own rules to live by, which are higher and contradict the rules of the nation. And his rule is this, thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment. And despite the fondness that, that, that the king has for Daniel, nothing can be done. It's the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be changed. And so it's into the lion's den he goes. The whole thing leaves you wondering where the power sits in the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, doesn't it? Who, who really is in control here? I mean, the king is something of a puppet. He's been lied to, he's been manipulated, and he can't change the law probably because he would lose face in the kingdom. It's a bit like the Second Amendment in the United States, you know, the gun law that, that protects the right for everyone to bear arms. And, and of course they could change it. But the, 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 the face that would be lost with the, the people that matter for, for Donald Trump or somebody else just wouldn't, just wouldn't happen. It can't be changed. It's the law of the Medes and Persians. And, and, and what sort of, what sort of uh, rule is being God for 30 days anyway? If you think about it, it's like a token gesture, isn't it? I mean, who's really in control here? Who's rolling the dice and moving his piece and deciding what to buy on this game of Monopoly? Who's doing it? And Darius makes it clear. He wants to deliver his friend Daniel. Interesting, the choice of word here. Deliver. You see it there? He wants to deliver him. It's the same word that um, Nebuchadnezzar boasts when, when, when he says in chapter 3, who is the God who is going to deliver you? It's the same, it's the same word. And the king really wants to. He, 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 he tries to do something right until sunset. 
but he can't. He can't rescue him. He can't rescue Daniel. And the conspirers, they come again to remind him that you've signed it. The signet ring has been, has been cast. You can't, it cannot be changed. And the king is distressed. He wants no entertainment. He wants no food. And he can't sleep for worry. He's really distressed. I mean, who's really running things here anyway? That's, that's not much of a king, is it? It's quite clear that Darius is, is not even a king, never mind a god. He's not really running anything. He's not even in charge of his own little kingdom. Third point is praising. After the longest night in the king's memory, the morning light leads him back to the den. And he's so powerless and and desperate for his key man that, that he hasn't even got there yet. And he's shouting towards the den. And it's not, have you survived, that he shouts. Look at verse 20. It's not, are you alive, Daniel? What's he shout? He shouts, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God been able to deliver you? It's been quite a night, hasn't it? Why does he come up with that one? <laughs> He's in no doubt now, isn't he, Darius? He, he, he was unable to deliver Daniel, and he knows it. <laughs> and God is the only one who can deliver, and fake gods can't deliver. This is a God issue, and everybody knows it. And the king says, God is Daniel's God. Quite a remarkable statement. The living God, he calls him. Darius has begun to praise him already. He doesn't even know what's happened yet, and he's already beginning to praise him. He's calling him the living God. In verse 20, he's he's not a dead God like most of those in Babylon. No, he's a living one. We're told nothing of Daniel in the long night. We, we've no idea what happened to him. Uh, was, did, he, did he sleep really well? Uh, did, did he sing? Uh, we've no idea what, what he was doing. But we know what the false god was doing. He, he, he can't sleep. He, he can't eat. He can't think straight. Uh, and, and, and he ends up praising the one who really is God. And we know what the false God's doing and we also know what the true God's doing during the night because we're told that that God sends his angel. Now these are not sick lions. They're not sick at all. They're not, you know, off their food as we'll soon discover. No, God's angel shuts their mouths, we're told. And it's God that we're told about here. It's not really Daniel at all. It's it's God's judgment that's mentioned. He, He has declared Daniel to be blameless, Because it's what he thinks that really matters. Because he's God. And Daniel, Daniel's name means God is my judge. And fitting, isn't it, that that he pleases God and not the rules of men when they contradict. And God's judgment is that Daniel is innocent. And then in verse 24, the tables are turned, just like in Esther. The conspirers are themselves brought to justice. And this is why I find it difficult to know why this is a children's story. Well, I guess they don't mention this part, because it rightly grates with us the idea that the children and all are judged with their parents here. You see it there? It's very sad to hear this, but it's a common practice of the day, the ruthlessness of this regime, the Persians. They, they, they take the conspirers and they take their families and their children and they throw them all into the den of lions. And it's down they go and they're not sick lions anymore. They're, they never were. 
But I always find it interesting how this all plays out afterwards in verse 25. Interesting that the law of the Medes and the Persians has now been changed. Do you see it? Interesting that Darius says Daniel has been maliciously accused. Well, well, he did pray to God. (laughs) He did. Clearly things have changed to some degree. What's going on? Well, superseding the, the law of the Medes and the Persians stuff must have been conspiring against a high official, a president over the whole empire. Uh, and lying about him being on board must have superseded all of that law of Medes and Persians stuff that can't be changed. That must be what's going on here. And it's not Daniel, you are so great either, is it? He takes a back seat. It's God that's great. Yes, it's declared that he is innocent in his action towards the king, but God gets the praise. Because God is the miracle worker. God is the worthy one. He's the one that's worthy of all praise. And that's fitting. Fourthly, repeating. Ever get the feeling that you're going round and round in circles as you read some of this? As you read your Bible? Like like you've passed go, collected your 200, and you're on the same journey again. Because isn't Darius like Nebuchadnezzar? Isn't he? He starts off thinking that he's God. He's, he's tickled to sign such a law, but, but in the end he's humbled like Nebuchadnezzar and he realizes that the living God is, is the God of heaven, Daniel's God. And, and his great doxology here is, is just like Nebuchadnezzar's at the end of chapter 4. Remarkable, again, for a pagan king. Is he a true believer? It certainly seems so. God is reaching the nations already. Darius is like Nebuchadnezzar, but isn't Daniel like Joseph? Think about that. The favorite who's plotted against and yet he rises to the fore as second in the kingdom. He flourishes in a pagan regime, a government, and he gets the keys of the kingdom in effect. He's second in command. He's honest and just and true. He, he, won't, he, won't be, he, he, won't, he, he maintains his integrity. And he serves the king by, and by doing this, he serves God. And yet he suffers for being innocent. But what's this all about? The story of Daniel in the lion's den. Is it, is it that, we, that we look for miracles like this? Is, it, is that the point of the story? Pray hard and get a miracle? Is that it? If you're innocent before God, death will not get you. You can dodge bullets. Is is that the idea? You'll not be surprised to hear me say no to that one. It's tempting sometimes to read the Bible and forget the massive time frames that are involved here. Because it's not a miracle a day, is it? Because Daniel is probably in his 80s, and this is only his second miracle according to what's recorded in the Bible. He's been made well and healthy in chapter 1, despite eating vegetables and drinking water. And here he's, well, he's been rescued from the lion's mouths. It's not every day or anywhere near it. Having said that, God can and, and does deliver us in, in many salvations all the time. If you think about it, you have a bump in the road and, and you get out and, there's, and, you've, and you've prayed, oh, Lord, help me, and, there, and there's no mark on, on, on the bumper. And you're... Many salvation, you know. 
Or, or, you, or you forgot your coat and, and you go to work and it doesn't rain until you get in the door. And it's like, praise the Lord, wonderful, many salvation. He's a generous God, isn't he? Things like that. Little things. Secondly, remember the three friends in Daniel 3 and their but if not statement that really matters. But if not, we have one God that we serve and he's able to deliver us. But if not, well, we'll still do what's right and we'll still serve him anyway. That's the idea. Because we have no guarantees. We don't know if God will deliver us in our physical bodies. We still don't. There are many stories of martyrs and, and many stories of Christians suffering in, in, in shipping containers in Eritrea and, and locked up in prison camps in North Korea. There's no physical rescue for them as they suffer and many of them die. No guarantees. We don't know the secret will of God. We, we don't. But what we do have, is a guarantee over our greatest deliverance, our greatest need. That's what we have. And that's where Daniel being like Jesus really helps. He's like Jesus. We have the accusers circling the man of incredible integrity. We have them meeting in secret and scheming against him. Remember? And he's thrown into the lion's den. He's killed as far as all and sundry are concerned. The struggle from King Darius to release him is reminiscent of Pilate. As he tries to find a way to, to but he's backed into the corner and, and against his wishes even, he, even though he knows he's innocent. You don't come out of the den of lions alive. You don't come out of the belly of a fish alive. You, the stones rolled over uh, the, the tomb. The stones rolled over the den, you know. But he's not in jail permanently. He's just visiting. Because God delivers him from death. It cannot hold him. He, he vindicates him and declares him to be right by raising him from the den. And in that, he delivers us from death. We saw this this morning. He's the great victor. He delivers us from the power of sin and the devil has no claim over us. Yes, this is a story about persecution to some extent. On the 17th of December, just uh, the other month, there was this headline. At least 200 heavily armed suicide at least two heavily armed suicide bombers assaulted a crowded church in Quetta, southwestern Pakistan, and killed at least nine worshippers from the minority Christian community. Nine worshippers in church. All because they wanted to go to church. And the question is, how important is it for, for us to get to worship? How important is it for you to pray with us on a Wednesday here or in home group as it is this week? We'll look at it the other way. How hard would it, would it need to get before we didn't bother? Now, that's a big challenge. I haven't seen one in years, but people used to, to, pre, to, to use pressure cookers uh, to cook the, the spuds, you know, the potatoes, on a Sunday. And one time on a Sunday, I was helping my mother, and I tried to open the pressure cooker when it was still hot. And she says, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. 
And she grabbed it off me and she said, it will explode in your face. How much pressure would it take for you not to bother to live as a Christian anymore? Ask yourself that. How hard would it have to be? How hard would it have to be to get to church before you wouldn't bother? It's about persecution, this. But this is chiefly about the importance of prayer. And that's the final point. This is really about prayer. Daniel was a man of prayer. Daily he prayed three times. The new, of, the new law, of course, leaves Daniel in a bit of a, predict, a bit of a predicament. Just like his three good friends in chapter 3, he can either do as he's told by the state or do as he's told by the Bible because it's different. But we find faith in the young men uh, in chapter 3 and we find faith in the old man now. We find that he's not cynical and cold in his faith as he reaches the twilight of life. No, no. He's got strong faith, Daniel. I remember someone praying, Lord, help me not to become a grumpy old man. Wonderful to see the same faith in the youthful Daniel of chapter 1 as in the aged man of chapter 6. That's something to be, to be admired, isn't it? Something to attain to. He's been around a few corners over the decades. He's seen things. He's, he's done things. But, but, he, but he's got backbone still. He, he's still there. He's a man of faith. He's, he's an example to the younger men around him. And you know what? Prayer really matters to Daniel. It's not that he's ignorant of the change in the law and he just sort of was caught out. No, he knows rightly. Verse 10 tells us that. He knows. He knows the law's been, been, been signed. And, and, and so just as he always does, he, he opens the window in his upstairs room and he, uh, in the house and he looks towards Jerusalem and he prays. Why is he looking towards Jerusalem? Well, when Solomon dedicates the, te the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, he says these words. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people, Israel. Solomon foresees the days of sin and exile and Daniel's living in them. And he's looking towards Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. To face Jerusalem is to face the presence of God. Because, of course, that's where God dwelt in the temple. And very soon Daniel is caught red-handed. Or it would be probably more accurate to say red-kneed. They've had him watched well. Because they know he's been praying three times a day. For Daniel, it's a matter of rank. Yes, he will serve and obey King Darius, no problem at all. He will help his pagan nation to prosper because he's doing his job well and serving God. But when it comes to matters of faith, he listens to the top first. He won't be told what to do as far as his faith with God is concerned. He won't be prevented from communicating with his God. He won't be prevented from speaking with his Lord and Master. He won't. His faith in private is visible in public. If you want to go around the house and get the binoculars out, or you want to look through the window, you can have a look. He'll, he'll be there. He's not going to hide from you. If you want to come and have a look, he's going to be praying. The most important thing to Daniel is not self-preservation. It's his relationship with God. It's clear, isn't it? 
he really, really values it. He knows that he's powerless without it. He's nothing without it. He's not taking a chance. He's sure and certain of his faith in his all-powerful God who will not fail him. For he is the living God, says Darius, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. You see, to the average Persian, a lion was was an untamable picture of sheer power. But to God, well, he made them. He can tell them what to do. It's no problem. I wonder, and this is a real challenge, if everything else went and we were left with one thing, would God be enough for us? That's a real challenge. How valuable is that time alone with God? How how important is it to you? That relationship. You can say all the right things, but, 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 but your prayer life is the barometer of it, isn't it? Prayer is, is like audible faith, you know? If you've got faith, you're going to be audible about it because you're going to pray. And it's a way of showing who you, who you, really, who you really trust in. It's audible, faith. But do we even need a threat to stop us taking time to pray? Does it, does it take it for us to be enemies of the state, for us to stop? I mean, I mean, sure, the busyness of life can even do it, can't it? The kids can be unruly. The TV show that leaves us too tired and we drop off to sleep, not to mention the possibility of being cold in our faith, we can stop praying very easily without too much pressure. This is a story of persecution. You aren't allowed to worship Daniel. You aren't allowed to pray. And this is the reality for lots of Christians today. Don't practice your faith in any visible way. But let's not give in already. You know? Let's not throw the towel in already and and already act as if we're not allowed to pray by not praying whenever we can. The story of Daniel is not about praying with, with enough faith until you're rescued from your lion's your circumstances or waiting on a miracle as if, as if we were assured of it? No. It's a pointer to the great deliverer, yes, that's for sure. But it's who is God again and how important is he to you? Prayer is audible faith. It's, it's, it, it's, Daniel's faith is real. It, it, it's, 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 it's obvious. But how easy would it be to stop us from worshipping him? How much would it take to get you to stop praying? Big challenges. There's nobody who thinks their prayer life's great because that's the way it should be. <laughs> There's always something, some other part of us that, 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 that we need to, 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 to give to God. I am no prayer warrior. That's not the way it is. I need to pray more. I need to pray with more of my time and more of my, my being. 
But it's a lesson in the importance of that regular time spent with God, isn't it? It's how you ascend. Now, this is like a little picture, isn't it, of prayer, these headings. It's how you ascend to, to, to the throne of heaven to be with God because you're powerless without it. You see, it's how you praise the one who brings everything good in your life. It's about repeating, you know, constantly coming back to to God because that's what you really need. I wonder how you feel about the importance of prayer in your life. Let's not feel beaten up by it. That's the temptation. Let's feel spurred on to reignite that love, that faith in the place of prayer and to find it precious to be alone with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a privilege we have to come before you. Give us a fresh desire to to come often to repeat the awesome privilege that we have been given. Father, we're we're prone to beat ourselves up over this issue, Father, and yet we want to to look to to an example of a man who, who, who it really meant a lot to and to Jesus Christ who took much time to pray to his Father. Help us not to throw the towel in without much pressure. And help us to see those times as precious as we communicate with our Heavenly Father who loves us so much. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together as we close. It's before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. Let's respond with these words, please.